0: This is Christ the Center, episode number 122. This is the Christ and Culture critical response from Bill Dennison. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we really do thank everyone who helps keep this program coming out every Friday morning. As we prepare for 501c3 filing with the IRS, we could really use your support. Please visit us online at reformedforum.org to help us out. Welcome to Christ the Center. This is episode number 122. My name is Camden Busey. Today I'm pleased to introduce round two of our Christ and Culture discussion. We have four participants, Bill Dennison, Daryl Hart, Doug Wilson, and Nelson Klosterman. And we've gotten through the first round of recordings. We've talked about politics, uh, vocation, education, and fine arts. We've even talked about common grace, natural law, and eschatology, and now each participant has had the opportunity to give his opening remarks, and now we're going to get into some of the criticism. So today we're presenting Bill Dennison's response. He was able to listen to the recordings of all the other three participants, and today he's going to provide his response and his criticism of the other people's views. Bill Dennison is Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and he is the Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Northwest Theological Seminary. We hope you enjoy this program. Here is Bill Dennison.
1: My response uh, to the other um, colleagues um, is uh, on this, and I'm sort of going to refer to them uh, in this case uh, at times, maybe as colleagues in terms of the uh, intramural discussion that's going on here. Um, I'm going to uh, proceed in terms of three areas, culture, uh, the Ten Commandments, uh, and uh the idea of government uh, specifically with that and, and education spe- uh, more specifically uh, with the uh, day school issue. Um, and so I will begin uh, my, my response uh, in terms of the culture of, let me begin with this challenge. I want to challenge my colleagues uh, in this discussion to really think of the Christ and culture issue in terms of the redemptive historical contrast of biblical revelation. And what I'm thinking here is, uh, with respect to the Genesis 3.15, uh, with the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Uh, extension, of course, in biblical revelation is the, the battle, the antithesis between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Obviously, in my judgment, uh, as I said previously and the other, and the other time, I, uh, I feel that this is incorporated well in, in the, in the early church theologian Augustine, uh, and his paradigm, capturing this paradigm with respect to the city of God versus the city of man. I see this, uh, this carried through in biblical revelation very clearly and strongly as we come into the eschatological kingdom of God in its fulfillment in the coming of Christ, and Paul picking up at that with the idea of the two ages. And so the age to come versus the present evil age uh, would be the contrast. The age to come, which is the heavenly age uh, in the seed of the woman extended in redemptive history, and the present evil age, in terms of the prince of this age, as Paul calls, uh, refers to him, uh, in terms of the continuation of the seed of the serpent. And then my argument here is that we must not look or define culture in a monistic construct. Uh, I think this is a, um, this is a, a failure by many, uh, in terms of the definition of culture. Um, uh, you know, I will hold it uh, to, uh, for my colleagues to, for them to judge whether that was the way they wanted to define it and understand it. But I want to underline the fact that there are two cultures set in place uh, by God's judgment. And um, so, um, <clears throat> so for, uh, for example, for Doug Wilson, I would say that it is it is there is a necessary dualism uh that uh that cannot be surrendered and uh, that is necessary um he asked whether uh that, that would be uh, a case and i think there is in this case um indeed i agree with him that the lord is the lord over all in blessing and in judgment uh but we must keep still the 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 very core of the history of biblical revelation at the forefront of this antithesis that Van Till talks about uh, himself incorporated from uh, 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 from Genesis 3:15. It runs all the way through, and should run. This antithesis must run all the way through our analysis of culture even our analysis of culture in relationship to uh, common grace whenever we speak of that common grace. The antithesis must run through our discussion of any concepts of common grace insights. In this context, I would suggest that uh, Daryl Hart refine uh, his, his Augustinian position to be more truly Augustinian, uh, the present discussion of the two kingdoms is not um, uh, Augustinian at its core, in my judgment. It is not even Pauline at its core. It is a cultural response to culture. Uh, the present discussion of the two kingdoms is a cultural response to culture, especially in the realm of the political social issues. We are obsessed, I think, in our day, uh, with politics, and thus it comes into, it does, and thus it comes into play even in that, uh, the present, uh, discussion of the two kingdoms. The two kingdoms idea, the present discussion arises out of, I believe, a pragmatic social and political cultural situation in order for the for the interested Christian to find his or her way in such domains. But the inner core of the biblical revelatory philosophy of history is not, in my judgment, the, the uh, let me repeat that, the inner core of biblical revelatory philosophy of history is not the heavenly government and the civil government or earthly government. Rather, it is the all-encompassing, full-orbed worldview of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Now, at this point, Augustine employs another category in conformity to biblical revelation and a biblical view of two kingdoms. And what I'm talking here about when I talk about I believe the biblical view of the two kingdoms is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. This category is sometimes overlooked. Don't see it much in the literature, in Reform literature, but, anyways, in conformity to Scripture, uh, and I would perhaps Christ's parable, the wheat and tares, is best here. There is in Augustine this cate- uh, category of. Kivitas Premixa, or translated the mixed city, in which the elect and the non-elect must exist together, and that's why I'm saying that probably the wheat and the tares, uh, in terms of Christ's parable, where they coexist in this creation for a while, uh, best uh, it depicts that biblically. And uh, so that the citizens of the eternal kingdoms and cities and cities are mixed together in the present world. Now, the mixed city is more than the state, mm. and, and it's more than the civil government. In the mixed city, the two eternal kingdoms, we. the two eternal kingdoms, uh, live together in commerce, vocation, recreation, and yes, government. And because of the pragmatic cultural situation at the Reformation, and what seems to be fueling the present discussion of the two kingdoms, Um, there is a shift away from the biblical teaching of the two kingdoms, here again, uh, the uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, to a relativized view of the two kingdoms between the heavenly kingdom and the civil government. Um, I would argue if this becomes the paradigm of the present state of affairs in the church, then the focus of emphasis will be upon the life of the church and the body politic within the culture. Less emphasis will be placed upon our covenant responsibility in all areas of life, for example, commerce, vocation, recreation, and perhaps even education. Education. Uh, so that there will be a way in which education will be looked at uh, perhaps maybe in the way that uh Dr. Hart says it's okay with respect to uh he's okay with respect to going to public uh education but perhaps most important the two kingdoms of the church the kingdom of heaven and the civil government paints the eschatological core of God's progressive revelation in scripture, and that is that that eschatological core is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the serpent. The eschatological core of biblical revelation seems to be moving to an appendix of reformed thought for the sake of moving our obsession about church and state matters into the forefront. Grounded on an epistemological, metaphysical, and moral category of natural law. Now, let me just pause here for a second because I want to applaud, uh, Dr. Klosterman here, uh, on, on a couple of points. Uh, he has written some fine material, uh, for your, uh, for your listeners on the issue of natural law in two kingdoms in response to uh, what's going on in the present discussion, and he's taking on that discussion from his own uh, Dutch tradition. Also, concerning this idea of natural law in its relationship to the civil government, Klosterman made a tremendous quote, uh, brought up a tremendous quote that I think he does need to be reflected upon, in which he asked us to do in his section, and that is the, on the Canons of Dort 3-4, where it says, Even in things civil, the natural man cannot use the glimmerings of natural light aright. And that, I think, is a very, very important point. So a truly eschatological perspective of viewing our lives in Christ I see will recede to the background for the sake of discussing church and state matters in the present culture. If this this idea of the two kingdoms of the kingdom of God and the civil government becomes um, becomes the real strong paradigm controlling uh, the life of the church and with respect to cultural issues. Uh, the argument will be, uh, from people that the church and state or the present discussion on the two kingdoms, uh, will have more, it will be more concrete and relevant where perhaps the position that Augustine, uh, took from the scriptures, uh, concerning the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan will be seemed like in terms of an eschatological structure to be more as a pie in the sky conception. Mm. Now, I would like to move on in terms of my discussion here uh, to to sort of flesh out a little bit more about this eschatological element. This eschatological element, in my judgment, is absolutely crucial. Uh, Nelson, Nelson Klosterman is correct about viewing the present issues of culture protologically. That is, the future and or eschatological domain of God's prophetic word uh, bears some relationship to the, to the beginning of, to where we stand now, uh, in, in Providence and in history. However, the issue of continuity and discontinuity between the creation and the new heaven and earth, I would hold to be quite different of my own personal position from Wilson and Klosterman. And let me repeat, I'm talking here about the issue of continuity and discontinuity between this creation and the new heaven and earth. With respect to cultural activity, um, I do not see this as a continuity from this creation to the new creation. I'm not comfortable with the language used in post-mill camps and Dutch Calvinist camps, whether it be neo-Calvinist transformationalists or Dutch non-transformationalists who still seem to use Bobbing's paradigm of grace restores nature for some construct of cultural continuity uh, in, in, in this. Uh, for Wilson... Um, all of history uh contributes something to the consummation uh he talks about the various cities that he's written about uh this world and culture the cultures of the age will all he says participate in the final redemption nothing good will be will be finally lost um For Klosterman, Klosterman, I would say there's two parts here that I would like to focus on concerning his comments. The culture is a maturation of the creation in which man's contributions, and that maturation will undergo purification, cleansing at Christ's return. Secondly, the fruits of human activity, remarks, as far as they meet God's standard, Standards and insofar as they are in accord with God's character in person, render him glory. Uh, they, these fruits of human activity, are welcomed and received in the new heaven and a new earth. That in the, and then I'll quote here with that, what is, we do here is not, uh, nothing or for nothing. Uh, what we do here will all in its imperfection, will be purified and sanitized by the grace of God. Now, I would like to respond here to both uh, uh, Reverend Wilson and Dr. Klosterman. I am very uneasy uh, with a paradigm and language that views the continuity of human cultural activity, and I'm talking here in the context of the mixed city, of the con- uh, so I'm very uneasy with a paradigm and language that views the continuity of human activity in the mixed city to have a continuity in the new heaven and earth, even if it is infused by God's grace. Um, <clears throat> um, in, now, the question could be is why. <laughs> yeah. uh, why is because one thing is, is because I still see the ultimate core of Revelation being embedded in terms of the two ages, uh, those who are in union with Christ and those who are in union with the, with the serpent or with, the, with Satan. So in such a paradigm, you hear the language of human activity, human contribution, activity we do, our actions as participating in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, what it concerns me there is it seems to have an implicit works idea uh, in which the mixed city works uh, uh, out of, somehow works out of uh, Um, Well, let me put it this way, the mixed city, in this case, its works are without the concept of grace as looked at in terms of the two ages, Mm. uh, the age to come and the present evil age. And you're talking about some type of continuity between the mixed city and the new heavens and the new earth, I believe incorporates a kind of dangerous works principle. And perhaps, uh, perhaps, uh, this is consistent, uh, with what, uh, Reverend Wilson said on vocation, uh, in which he talks about vocation in terms of hard work, meet your obligations, or the idea that our work is to be a work that excels the best we can do. I, I, uh, fail to see there, uh, any consciousness of, of an eschatological view of union with Christ with vocation. As a matter of fact, in both of those positions, both of those principles of vocation work hard and excel, non-Christians also can have those type of uh, view of vocation. So I think there's some concern here uh, concerning the relationship to the works uh, principle uh, in the mixed city, uh, as it has some type of continuity, perhaps, with the new heaven and the new earth, and I think that could be clarified. It would seem to me that the appropriate section of our confessional standards about this subject, about the subject, again, of the continuity of human cultural activity in the new heaven and the new earth, Uh, would be found in the sections on good works, chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith and article 24 of the Belgic Confession. In these chapters, I do not find even a hint of our good works being given a status of continuity with the construct of the new heavens and earth. The focus is upon the hearing of the Word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit, the Belgic Confession, Article 24. That is, the works that proceed from the Holy Spirit, Westminster Confession 16.5. Holy from the Spirit of Christ, Westminster Confession 16.3. Works viewed through the Son, Westminster Confession 16.6 works done through faith, faith in Christ that covers Belgic Confession 24, Westminster Confession of Faith 16.2. And in this life of faith we take the difficult words of Christ seriously. We are in pro- unprofitable servants. We have done what <clears throat> was our duty to do. The emphasis, now I know that that's a difficult passage in its understanding and interpretation. I know Bovink has made some uh, suggestions about that himself, but uh, but nevertheless, this is quoted even in the Belgic Confession uh, on good works uh, in Article 24. It comes from Christ's words recorded in Luke 1710. Mm. Further, I have... Um, a hard time understanding how the beauty of Mozart, Beethoven, and Picasso <laughs> will be enhanced, multiplied, and deepened, and served in the new heaven and, new, and earth in light of the Westminster Confession of Faith 16.7, uh, in terms of how that views the works of the unbelievers. So it seems to me that in terms of any view that wishes to affirm cultural continuity today with the new heaven and the new earth, whether it be in terms of a liberal social gospel, whether it be in terms of the uh, cultural uh, kind of transformationalism talked about by N.T. Wright and Donovan in England, uh, whether it be we find it in the emergent church uh, movement, uh, whether we find it even in some way in terms of the cultural distinction, even though continuity and discontinuity here, but at least in terms of the picture of how the end will come in pre-mill c- camps, to the Calvinistic post-mill schools and also neo-Calvinist transformational school, it seems to me that the book of Hebrews is being laid aside out of the canon of Scripture. This is a concern of mine. I find little discussion an in interaction with the book of hebrews in discussing this type of subject uh, uh across the spectrum hmm. uh progressive revelation is uh, is embodied in the canon of the scripture it comes about even in the canon of the new testament you move from paul's two age construction the already and the not yet even in that construction of the age to come uh to, uh, uh, to that, uh, to the discussion concerning the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you move from there in terms of Paul's discussion there uh, to the book of Hebrews. And there is there the great commentary on the church being a pilgrim people. Hebrews is giving further commentary on the discussion of Paul's two-age construction. Uh, He's giving further commentary for our understanding in the Church. And the relevant passages, of course, as we know, is, is of course, the famous Hebrews 11 passage, uh, 8 through 10, 13 through 16, terms of the patriarchs who are looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God the concept of the shaking of the earth and uh and the heavens that in the new heaven and the new earth is which is not shaken in 12:25 through 29 and also the great passage in in Hebrews 13:11 through 14 which we see the incorporation of Christ being crucified outside the city which is very significant and even as it is as that is also a shower or a pointer to us that we have no continuing city here on earth in Hebrews thirteen fourteen. Yes. Um, uh, and so I think that is in very, very important that in terms of the imagery of the inheritance of the people of God, of faith, is that our inheritance is all of grace, and our inheritance is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the final end. First question and answer of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Catechism. Then you move in terms of the canon. We have Paul in terms of Thessalonians. We have commentary to help us there in terms of understanding his position uh, f- uh, further and, uh, with respect to Hebrews, then I would say that you must interpret, uh, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 11, uh, and, uh, in terms of the Hebrews passage as we progress through the canon, where we are told that the earth and the works will be burned up. And I think this continues. You understand this in the context of God is a consuming fire. Hebrews twelve twenty-nine, looking back in terms of the progress of the canon, and Second Thessalonians Paul's statement of one eight, in terms of of where he says first in 2 Thessalonians one eight, that the flaming fire of God is coming uh, uh, in terms of God taking his vengeance. Um, and, and, and so I think you have to work with those passages in terms of the progressive revelation. I am not one who holds to a popular view today in which the Peter passage is saying a kind of refinement, a purifying, and so that there is continuity of our works from this creation into the new creation. Uh, I do not think that is the teaching of, 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 of Scripture. You see, we have, and so I do believe that there is enough con- discontinuity here. The importance of discontinuity is under, has to underline this understanding of our, our relationship from our human activity in this creation into the new creation so that we understand that our salvation is all of grace. It is grace alone by which we are saved. And it is grace in which God himself is going to implement, even in terms of uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and there's this type of theology, in my judgment, that is at the heart of Calvin's view on, on heaven, which comes through in the Institutes and Book three and, uh, and I believe the core of Calvin's position, uh, the succinct core of Calvin's position appears in book three um, uh, uh, chapter 9, section four, where he says, "If heaven is our homeland, what else is the earth but our place of exile? It gets a golden statement in terms of Calvin, how he understands, our relationship to the uh, heaven itself in our place here on earth. So we are already in heaven, even right now. We live in terms of the, uh, and we live already in terms of our identity, our union with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul is emphatic about that point, even as we live also in the present evil age, in the mixed city as well. The picture of the not yet, the new heavens and earth coming down from heaven is to impress upon us in Revelation 21, 1 and 2, is to impress upon us that the idea of of condescension, and the idea of condescension means grace in Scripture. Whatever the furniture is (laughs) in the new heaven and the new earth, and which is still a mystery to us all, the point is that the old heaven and earth will pass away and that is true so that we understand that whatever that furniture is set up to be it is set up to be by God. Christ tells us he's going he's going he's departing John 14:2 to create uh uh to uh to c- construct for us those mansions that we will occupy and uh... and so he prepares a place for us it is all done by god even the furniture it is not done by us so the condescension uh... is a underlining of the fact of grace and that it comes to us even as complete gift not by our works so i have all kind of problems especially with the neo calvinist movement that wants to look at, Genesis, at Revelation 21, 1 and 2, uh, in terms of that dissension, uh, as some, that the there is a complete continuity between the new heaven and the new earth here on earth, as, as advocated and, and articulated uh, concerning that position from someone who is not on this in this discussion, but Cornelius Planiga. In his book on engaging God's world in the epilogue where they see a complete continuity between, uh, this earth and the new heaven and new earth. I absolutely reject that position, uh, and, uh, and the basis even of the passage of Revelation 21, 1 and 2. The issue that I would like to address now in terms of uh, changing the pace is the role of the 10 commandments in uh with respect to civil government um, and i am going to i'm going to maintain here that i think we are all in agreement here that the government in terms of romans 13 uh is to punish the role of government is to punish evil and uphold the good as, as stated by every single um, uh person uh, uh on this discussion um, but I, as I begin here, I would like to say I am not convinced that the civil government should be uh, should begin uh, by obeying the Ten Commandments or that the civil government's responsibility is to honor and follow the Ten Commandments rightly understood, as stated by Reverend Wilson. If I understand Klosterman correctly, Dr. Klosterman correctly, he would like to follow the basic principles found in his study of Calvin, in which I believe personally in my own study, he has correctly analyzed Calvin's position. For the listener, we're talking here about Calvin's Institutes, I believe, uh, uh, chap- uh, um, uh, book four, chapter 20. Now, um uh, Dr. Klosterman may have done more in terms of the corpus of Calvin on this than I have, but I am relying on that section myself here. And Klosterman, as I said, has correctly, I believe, uh, analyzed Calvin's position. And that is, and I quote here from what Dr. Klosterman has shared with us, the second table is normative for the civil government. Governments are called to recognize the first table, but they are not called to enforce the first table. I think that's an accurate analysis of Calvin's position. I also I would say that um, in terms of the Dutch tradition, especially in the 19th century, that uh, Kuiper and Bob Inc., I believe, incorporated this basic principle themselves, as they looked at government, and uh, uh, von Prinster as well, with a little bit different modifications, he might be a little bit stronger in some ways than Bob and and, and uh, Kuiper. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, uh, with that as our background, I believe I want to now respond to this uh, personally, and my own personal position here is I believe Calvin is wrong about the application of the Ten Commandments universally to civil governments. We no longer live in the world of the Holy Roman Empire, the uh, the church and state under the obligation of the Lordship of Christ. Historians, for those who are listening, historians basically uh, start the Holy Roman Empire, of course, with Constantine, And it exists all the way until, interestingly, all the way until Napoleon's invasion of Europe, uh, under the Enlightenment principles in the early 19th century. We no longer live under that, under that type of environment. This is why in the post-Enlightenment world, critical analysis has been given to the sections on the magistrate in our confessional standards. There are multiple and various worldviews portrayed within a vast array of global civil governments. So are these civil governments responsible to honor and follow the 10 commandments? And I'm going to underline the words rightly understood used by Reverend Wilson. Secondly, secondly, I do not find any endorsement of these principles through biblical revelation. Uh, I know that most of the arguments for this type of, uh, uh, of, uh, setting up or understanding of the Ten Commandments applied to civil government is inferred, inferred from certain texts and positions and then placed upon, uh, and placed upon, um, the consciousness of the of the government and the christian community but in fact the 10 commandments rightly understood is that grace can never be separated from obedience that the law is given by god in covenant and i'm quoting here larger catechism of the westminster larger catechism God in covenant question and answer, from the answer 101, that the law is given by God in covenant with his people. The law is given in the context of God's redemptive activity, Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments follows from grace, and that is saving grace. You never view the Ten Commandments outside the preface to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord thy God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. If you take away the preface and you just look at the Ten Commandments, then you have law without gospel, never the intent. Never the intent in terms of God's giving of his law. So what was the release? What was the redemption that in terms of God's redeeming act of bringing them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? Why is the preface so important? Because, Well, it was the Passover and the Exodus by which God released them out of Egypt which has its pointer, the foretaste of the death and resurrection of our Savior. Their deliverance is in their redemption. Their redemption is grounded in the event of God's sovereign grace of covenant love. Those who are the recipients of God's grace are given the prescription for obedience, the Ten Commandments. So God's redemptive activity is the ground. It is the source for the obedience of God's covenant people. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith is clear on this point. I want to bring back into view the larger catechism, question and answer 101, shorter catechism, question and answer 43. The Heidelberg Catechism also discussed the law under the third part, gratitude. We do want to note the wording of question 86, the first question in that section. Since then, we are delivered from our misery by grace alone, through Christ, without any merits of ours, why must we yet to do good works? You'll notice there the phrase, by grace alone. When the law appears in our confessional standards, whether it be in the Heidelberg Catechism or in the Westminster Confessions and Catechism, it always follows the full state, always follows the full state or system of salvation. It always is placed, you see, in the activity of the of the accomplished work of Christ. The law is always integrated in terms of its activity of God's grace, specifically the event of Christ's death and resurrection and the benefits that come into it. I've written on this somewhat in, way back in 1979 uh, because there's a grammatical structure here. Uh, in terms of, of, of the commandments, in terms of the preface, the indicative, and then the commandments come as the imperative. The indicative and the imperative even incorporates the concept of grace and obe- obedience. And this continues over, in my judgment, in terms of the New Testament, through the death and resurrection yeah. of our Savior, in terms of our relationship, in terms of what Christ has done and accomplished, uh, uh from that, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, having its focus in the fulfillment of Christ. I'm thinking here of such passages as Galatians two twenty, Romans, the great passage there, section of Romans six, one through fourteen, and Paul's discussion in Colossians three, one through seventeen. I often remark to people if you want to see a succinct uh discussion of the entire Theology of what Paul is about. Colossians 3, 1 through 17 has it all in terms of understanding our position in union with Christ in the heavenly places, and then our and then from that, how we are what that resurrected heavenly life is to look like even as we live in this mixed city in terms of our life of obedience to Christ, in terms of what he has accomplished for us with respect to the benefits of salvation. But there is, you see, there is no power, there is no power in terms of obedience to the law without the power, the effectual power, coming to us through the, through the Holy Spirit of Christ's death and resurrection. So therefore, in terms of morality what is the responsibility of the civil government? Mm -hmm. Now, once again, I would say in terms of all my colleagues, to punish evil and uphold the good is the way that Dr. Hart put it. And I would agree that Romans 13, 1 through 7, is built upon the continual endowment of God's work in all humans, that the law is written upon their hearts, to their conscience and manifested in their conscience, God has done that. So I think you do need to connect Romans 13 in terms of the progressive uh, statements of Paul and uh, in terms of his argument in that book with Romans 2:15. Romans 13 is connected to Romans 2:15 concerning a statement of the law written upon the hearts of men and in their conscience. But do we know the exact content and substance of God's law that has been written upon their heart? That's the question that I have. I would suggest that we must be very cautious here that God does not provide a comprehensive understanding of the content and substance within the human conscience that justifies God's judgment that the natural man is without excuse. See, I'm connecting all the way back into Romans 1. Here is where Calvin himself may be questioned as to being consistent to the principles that Dr. Klosterman provided earlier. Calvin stated that there exists in all men's minds universal impressions of a certain civil fair fair dealings and order. And then he goes on to say that in light of fallen reason, there are multiple applications of the law written upon the heart of all men, nullifying the things that are good. Now, what I am asking here is the section that I am referring to in Calvin, In which uh, we may want to discuss, is uh, Book 2, Chapter Mm 2, Section 13 in the Institutes. And and so there's where maybe there is some different, you know, that's a controversial area, uh, Section 12 and 13, uh, concerning Calvin and how we put that together with Book 4, uh, Chapter 20. And, but here, and even so, even so, here Klosterman's comment and reference to three, four of the canons of Dort is absolutely golden because here is possibly exactly out of what Calvin is saying here uh, they're taking their position. Even in things civil, the natural man cannot use the glimmerings of the natural light aright. So there's some problem here in terms of the fall. For myself, I am content with knowing that God restrains evil and resorts good in the civil world under the providential direction of civil governments all working out for his purpose as the final day of Jesus Christ approaches. To me, that is all scripture is saying. Hence, I am not content with going into the public sphere and appeal to natural law and natural revelation as a common point of content contact with the unbeliever in light of the noetic effects of the fall. But Dr. Hart may be more comfortable with this in light of his affinity more, I believe, Uh, and he can speak to this himself with Old Princeton, perhaps their apologetic approach in its incorporation of natural law, than rather than how we understand uh, the relation uh, of how Cornelius Van Til saw it. And in this case, you see, for me, as being a Van Tilian, I must presuppose the full or message of the Gospel in any engagement with humans in the public sphere, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where I would go now a parenthetical uh, comment that I would make in respect uh, uh, to uh, Reverend Wilson concerning the moral law in terms of a hermeneutic thing and this is although I am somewhat sympathetic to Wilson saying that the Mosaic Law applies unless the New Testament says it doesn't, I think a stronger and deeper hermeneutic controls the New Testament on this subject, and that is, how does the Mosaic Law apply in light that Christ was born under the law and comes in the fullness of time? I'm thinking here, of course, of Galatians 4.4 which therefore incorporates his work in terms of his death and resurrection. I think that's the stronger hermeneutical principle that must underline the idea of the continuity of looking at the Old Testament to the New Testament. Okay, my last section then is, uh, I'm going to discuss, uh, is uh, education. And um and I'm just gonna address uh very quickly here, I think, and compared to what I've done in the per- previous two sections, uh, the issue of, of the Christian day school as it's been termed. Uh so let me speak to the daily liberal arts education of schooling of the day school. Um uh Wilson uh said that the family is Dr. the Reverend Wilson said that the family is primarily responsible uh whereas Klosterman and Hart said the parents, I think I am understanding them correctly. I would argue that passages such as the classic passage in Deuteronomy six and Ephesians six are those passages must not be abstracted abstracted out of their covenant context. I would suggest that parents in the context of the covenant people of God are responsible for the education of their children. I'll repeat that. I suggest that parents in the context of the covenant people of God are responsible for the education of their children. I do not know how you remove Deuteronomy 6, especially in its context where it appears in the biblical text outside the concept of the covenant relationship, the corporate body, covenant body of of the church there, and include, and I would include Ephesians 6 in the same context. For this reason, although I live with it, I am not very sympathetic to homeschooling which I see as built upon the individual rights of the American family to educate their children in the manner they see fit. Indeed, under the Lordship of Christ, they will do that. Indeed, even in reform circles, the covenant will be invoked in the sense that this is my covenant child. But also, it seems to be immediately a transference of that understanding of a covenant in terms of that child in their home, in terms of a kind of individualistic American democratic view of understanding their relationship of, of, of education. But I do not find much of a conscious understanding of a corporate aspect of God's covenant in most homeschool parents. Uh, in, in relationship with that, even though I do know uh, pra- uh, pragmatically a lot of them join with others in terms of their schooling, in terms of certain subjects, and so forth. But uh, I still think there's a philosophical foundation there that needs to be somewhat corrected uh, uh, biblically uh, with respect to the corporate understanding of the covenant in relationship uh, in, uh, of the covenant uh uh, church. Mm. Even so, I am very sympathetic to Reverend Wilson saying that Christian education is a mandate for Christians, or, as Kosterman says, that it is preferred since our children need to be saturated with bi- with a biblical worldview. But Hart's position says, but Dr. Hart's position, which says, that it is okay to send the children to public schools, although he did qualify it, I do not recommend it necessarily, but it is okay, is not comforting to me. Now at this point, even as I say these things, I am fully aware of all versions, of all the various versions of the Christian day education, and that the overall conditions of that education is not in a good state at all. Matter of fact, I think it's in a very sad state. Um, and for your listeners and for the others, uh, uh, I did write on this, uh, on a, a three-part uh, article on uh, Christian education. Is it a mess? Back in 2003 on the in the reformed outlook. And um those are in the June, those are online, the June two thousand three issue, July, August, and the September issues, through issues. And you can get to that from Reformfellowship.net into the archives if anyone is interested in looking at that. We don't so there are some very interesting pragmatic problems that arise here. I do not want. Uh, uh, I do want to say that I believe that Dr. Klosterman gives tremendous pastoral advice here uh, concerning the whole landscape of the Christian education liberal arts. Even though I do uh, very sympathetic with the idea of the mandate uh, in terms of the preference that Dr. Klosterman gives and the mandate that the Reverend Wilson gives. I do understand that there are very serious differences now concerning the corporate understanding of the covenant in Israel's day and the New Testament day than where we are today concerning the Christian day school. For example, it costs a lot of money, <laughs> and, that, and that makes it difficult uh, for some parents. I see that very often. Uh, with that. But uh, nevertheless, I think to, to go back to my previous point, Dr. Klosterman gives tremendous pastoral advice here um, uh, with respect to working with people on the understanding of Christian education. He says we must be realists where there are areas where we, this understanding is an ideal. We must be pa- pastoral and patient. And that's what we have to do. We have to be patient here as well. A good example of that is just in the sense of my own employment here at Covenant College. Uh, in the, in the 16 years I have been here, the college constantly has had a very difficult time, uh, even getting the PCA kids, high school graduates to come to Covenant College. It's an extremely low percentage. Mm. And um and it's, uh, and it's, so it's been a continual burden upon the board, the administration here in terms of how do we try to get the message out and see the importance of coming to Covenant College. Well, right now the, the college is up to, uh, you know, basically the, it costs $33,000 a year to go here. Yeah. And so it becomes in a very, very ex- expensive, um uh in uh, investment. Uh so the question but the thing is that I think that um uh, that the PCA just does not uh comprehend and understand whereas the uh... where for example in Dr. Klosterman's background and turns the Dutch background is the uh is the the idea of the covenant and the corporate responsibility uh, and implications and applications of the covenant, uh, with respect to the day school, uh, uh, education, uh, being, as he said, uh, being educated under the, um, under the, um, under the worldview of, a Christian worldview or as Dr. Uh, Reverend, um, Wilson says, under the Lordship of Christ. They just don't, uh, comprehend that very well and, um, and understand that. Uh so uh it's been a very difficult uh time and I think really that's where the education will have to come and that's where and you'll have to be patient until that starts to become more and more uh uh infiltrated into the PCA and concerning that responsibility and um um and uh, so you have to be patient with that. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I, that, that gives something about uh, my, my concerns about that. Uh, that I'm a lo- obviously being a little bit uh, more vague on, and I can be, maybe answer or address some maybe questions later on that uh, in terms of what I see as a full orb Christian education under the, under the covenant rubic, rubric. And, uh, but anyways, that's where I'll stop.
0: This has been Bill Dennison's critical response to Daryl Hart, Nelson Klosterman, and Doug Wilson in our Christ in Culture series. If you missed any episodes from Round One, you can visit us online at reformedforum.org. There on the front page, you'll see all of Round One's episodes. If you'd like to get a hold of us, please email us at mail at reformedforum.org. You can also Twitter us at reformedforum. Send us a voicemail, 44097forum, or even send us real mail at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.